Welcome to TES Podagogy, the podcast about teaching for teachers. My name is John Severs and I'm Commissioning Editor at TES. My guest today is Professor Linda Graham, one of the world's leading researchers into behaviour in schools, who is based at Queensland University of Technology. So the big story at the moment in terms of behaviour is the adoption of no excuses policies, which I guess you would say is a very controlled form of behaviour management, but has it got a universal definition? What I have been reading lately has been about this whole broken windows kind of um, perception that, well, if you if you start with the little things and, and you clamp down hard on those, then everything else will work out much better. And, you know, so that's the kind of view behind it. Um, and so I would say I think that's fairly common, but, you know, how it's enacted in different schools uh, is, is how anything is enacted in different schools is always you know, up for debate. I believe it started in the US and has been imported to the UK and elsewhere. Is that problematic, do you think? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, in the US, for example, um, and, and that's the interesting thing, is that in the US, things, they started off uh, with no uh, uh, zero tolerance, you know, which is kind of the, the, big, the, the big daddy if you like, of um, of these kinds of responses to behaviour, and but the US is a very different country and very different culturally to to the UK and to Australia. I mean, we don't have, and the UK doesn't have the kind of gun issues that they do in the US. So, I mean, it's it's really quite inappropriate for our countries to, I guess, take something from there which has often been hatched um, in response to these, you know, events like Columbine and, and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, and, and so I don't think people necessarily look at the DNA of um, of a policy and where it's come from and, and I guess the, the different cultural kind of context in which it was um, brought up in. You know, like, for example, um, the use of corporal punishment is... Um, is acceptable and legal in many states in the US. It's not legal here in Australia. So there are certain things that, I guess, ideas and philosophies that end up trickling through, but that are, that are not consistent with your own culture. So that, I think, is, is kind of interesting. So when a school is deciding on a behaviour policy, you would not necessarily advocate just taking things that seem to work elsewhere and putting them into your own school or classroom? Well, yeah, that's right. And also what, what will be tolerated in one school um, by parents uh, will not be tolerated in another. Um, so, you know, it, it's really interesting. You can go into different, um, I guess, suburbs or, uh, and I'm thinking particularly here in Australia, but I know it's the same over in England, where, you know, more affluent areas, you, you can have some schools that where parents subscribe to, you know, cadet type. Um, uh, I guess discipline within schools but then there are also other very affluent schools where it's much more I wouldn't say laissez-faire but um, but much more I guess democratic um, so there are different and, and that's part of the thing with parent choice as well which are policies that both our governments have followed where you know there are parents who will tolerate it there are parents who won't tolerate it and then there are parents who I guess are told what um, what they what they can and can't have, um, and who don't have much choice uh, in the matter. 
and obviously teachers differ in how they view behaviour too. Do you think there is a perception among some now that managed behaviour is perhaps not part of teaching but is instead of a sort of barrier to teaching? Given some of the discourse that I've seen coming out of the UK and some of the things that have been said in that, you know, that behaviour is it gets in the way of teaching and all that sort of stuff, and I'm think, I sit there and think, yeah, hang on, um, that is a part of teaching. Um, and, and children do need to be taught um, and some children will need much more explicit guidance than others in you know because we the reality is that we have and particularly over where you guys are you have children entering school at a very young age um, you know four years of age and they're really not developmentally ready um, a lot of the time um, to be able to and you will find that there have been studies that show that the younger children in a year group end up being the ones that get in the trouble most. They're the ones who end up with a diagnosis of ADHD. You know, there's all sorts of things that go on there. But there seems to be this expectation that they will come into school knowing what to do um, and that, that somehow that once they cross that threshold that that's going to be... Um, you know, either they should know what to do or they should do what they're told immediately. Um, but that's really not realistic um, mm. because you're dealing with four-year-olds. <laughs> and the problem is that if it doesn't happen at school and they don't, um, you know, they aren't, I suppose, supported and helped in order to for that to happen for them, and if there's not some sort of understanding that for different children that's going to occur at different rates it's going to take you know um, more intervention with some than it is others all that sort of stuff if those core I guess support and preparation doesn't happen in those early years then and if it doesn't happen in the right way then that can cause all sorts of problems later on. Is this where we see um, children sort of pigeonholed as difficult or challenging children and uh, certain behaviours are expected of them and reactions to those behaviours are sort of become set in stone, you, you get a problem child essentially. I know Jyla Fabrian's talked about this on, on Twitter quite a bit, um, a head teacher at a special school, how some of the children that he sees have become almost institutionalised to, to be that difficult child. Absolutely. I think, um, I mean, so... The project that I'm doing at the moment, or one of them, is um, so it's in its fourth year. It's a six-year longitudinal study that's following prep children. So these are children who, in Queensland and Australia, uh, they started around start school around the age of five, um, and we're tracking them through all the way to the end of grade five. And what I really wanted to do was to learn to understand the hard baking process, which is my term for what you're describing there and because in other research I have worked with the kids who end up outside school you know like improves and, and things like that and what I found really disturbing was that they all talked about because we you know we did interviews with them that were had retrospective questions and so it was kind of like longitudinal backwards if you like mm. um, we were very interested uh, in their mainstream school experiences, um, how they thought um, they ended up where they were. And a lot of them, it was really interesting, a lot of them 
took responsibility. Um, you know, they they had fully internalised the there is something wrong with me um, kind of thing. Um, they were pretty broken uh, by the time they got to, you know, these behaviour schools. These kids were, on average, 13 and a half years of age, but we had boys from 9 to, you know, 16. Okay. Um, and what really worried me was that when we asked them, you know, when did you start disliking school? When did they start having problems in school? The majority of them, out of the 33 that we worked with, said uh, kindy to year two. Okay. So young, these yeah. kids had, yeah, and and what what was a really common story between all of them was that they had come into school um, re- not ready, basically, for the demands of school. Um, a lot of them were from disadvantaged backgrounds, all that sort of stuff, and where they were getting in trouble um, were was for things that. I would argue that it's really not their fault. So things like not following instructions or not doing their work. Now, I know probably a lot of teachers would disagree with me on that, but when you have a look at the other data that we collected about these kids, then you, it, the penny starts to drop, which is the majority of them had huge issues with language. So if you have receptive language issues, not following instructions is is you know that's that's the term that's used, but it's actually they don't understand the instructions that they've been given, mm. and they end up getting in trouble for stuff like that. Or so the majority of them also had um, ADHD, for example. Well, not following instructions is a very common uh, kind of issue with kids with ADHD, and that's because they hear the first bit and maybe the last bit, and they don't hear the bit in the middle. Uh, all that sort of stuff. So the and then the other part was that they um, they got in trouble for not doing their work. I mean, it's, and a lot of what they talked about was classic task avoidance. And when you ask them why, it's because because I can't do it, you know. So and that's not surprising. We had fifteen year olds who couldn't read. Well, one boy said to us um, when we asked, uh, you know, you've been in the behaviour school for three years now. Do you think it's done anything for you? It was like, well, yeah, because I can now read street signs and I'm hoping to become a truck driver one day. Oh, wow. So, yeah. I mean, so that's the thing. You know, these kids are getting into huge trouble at school. Often, you know, they're, and what was happening with these ones, and this is where I, I get quite angry, really, because, you know, we talk, we have all these, these kind of conversations about behaviour and it's, they're all very superficial. There are there are things that we do within schools that actually really contribute to the problems that these kids are having. They don't receive support early enough. And in the project that I'm doing at the moment, it's, honestly, I want to put my head down and cry sometimes. There is so little connection between what's going on with the kid whether the teacher realises that there's stuff going on with that kid. And I'm talking about, you know, whether there might be a language disorder present, right? Mm. And then whether the child receives support, and if they do, whether that support is even remotely connected to what that issue might be. Do you think, I mean, the, the argument against this often is that, so, you know, what are you proposing? Are you proposing you don't, 
sanction these children, we don't give them boundaries, and that, that it tends to get quite polarised immediately. But I, I'm guessing that's not what you're saying. You're just saying it's a different type of approach. It's no. a supportive approach. Yeah. Um, uh, well, that's the thing. I think a lot of people would love to paint me as someone who doesn't believe in discipline and, you know, come by and, and lets everybody wave crystals. And no, I'm not like that at all. <laughs> I, I don't really like the word discipline. And the reason that I don't really like it is because, you know, the way in which people think that that means something bad. Mm. Um, you know, but discipline can be positive. Um, and productive. Um, so productive discipline is actually, you know, making sure and supporting that child to be to be able to follow the rules to and teaching them what those rules are. What What is often happening is there will be this kind of, mm, okay, the child's not reading um, at the same level as the rest of the class. They're, you know, sort of, Coasting somewhere down the bottom. Oh, what support programs do we have? And the support program could be social skills, like a social skills program, or there will be the perception that the child has a behaviour issue, and so we'll put them on a behaviour card. Meanwhile, actually, the child might have a language disorder, and that's what our daughter, our data is pointing at. So my kind of you know what we're trying to piece together in this massive project is okay so what's the alignment between what we think is going on with the child what the teachers think is going on with the child and what support they do and don't receive and so far the picture is looking pretty bad mm. and what about um uh, we got a piece in uh, this week i think it is in the magazine uh, saying that disruptive behavior even if it's low level disruption prevents learning so you need to take that disruption out of the classroom to let everyone else learn it's the sort of the greater good argument i guess you, you you'd call it i mean how does that fit with this supportive model of behavior that you're talking about is, is that supportive model keeping that child into the classroom until they some you know catch up if you like or is that taking them out of the classroom until they're less disruptive to be in the classroom well, I mean, my first question would be, what what do they mean by low level disruption? Um, <laughs> because in some class, some of the classrooms that we're in, there'd be no kids left in the class. <laughs> so you know, good luck with that one. But um, but it, no, I actually don't think um, I don't think that that is helpful because how is that child going to how is that child going to learn? But also. Um, one of my objections to, I think people miss the complexity um, of what's going on as well. So sometimes those arguments can be popular and this is one of the things that I really detest about the no excuses kind of um, mantra or at least uh, the version of it that I've been seeing coming out of the UK. Um, and and one of the, the things that I object to in that is um, the, I guess the line that no excuses is necessary so that all teachers can teach. So um, there's been an argument made um, that not every teacher can be engaging, not every teacher can be 
you know, good at building relationships and da 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 da. So we have to have no excuses as behaviours that no, that all teachers can teach. And I'm thinking, hang on. So we need no excuses for students, so that we can have excuses for teachers. Not going to be popular for saying that, but you know what? I don't care. But so the thing is that in the research that we're doing, the teacher is actually a variable in disruptive behaviour and I don't think that that gets talked about in this conversation um, or this, this debate enough and there seems to me on certainly on some sides of the debate um, it's almost like they, they want to evacuate the teacher from uh, any part and role and responsibility other than well you know the teacher is the person who sets the, the rules and then it is up to the child to follow them um, and those rules uh, can be as draconian as we like because of the whole broken windows policy and all that sort of stuff. But that is forgetting that teaching is actually, you know, it's interactional. There is, you know, so there is cause and effect between, you know, children and, you know, other children, and then there is children and the teacher. So one of the things that we're doing when we're observing in classrooms is we're looking at all of those different interactions. And when teachers themselves are, um, I guess, um, not bringing their A game, that creates huge problems. And it's the kids who get in trouble for it. And that's what I don't like about the no excuses debate and what I don't like about the discourse as it currently stands or about you know suggestions that even low-level disruption, those kids need to be taken out of the classroom because my question would be, yeah, hang on, where's that low-level disruption actually coming from? Because in the observations that we do, when we see teachers who don't know what they're doing, and, and by that I could mean that they don't know the curriculum well, um, they are very, I guess, unproductive. So one of the things that we code for is productivity in terms of how much time children are, are spending sitting around and waiting for materials, waiting for the teacher to, you know, fix something uh, to do with the, you know, the, the smart board or the whiteboard or whatever it is. You know, that, that has implications. Other things that are really interesting is micromanaging. So one of the other, the, the other aspects of no excuses that concerns me is that if you spend your time micromanaging behaviour and you know and and focusing on that all the time, well, actually that's all you end up focusing on. But it also causes problems because while you're focusing on the behaviour of some, then it creates problems elsewhere. So it's it's far more complex than a lot of these kind of trite. Um, just do this or just do that um, type situation. Um, my final question then is, is an interesting one because I know you have kids and what I find with some teachers is that they, they'll tell me about their methods for the classroom in terms of behaviour management but their methods at home will be very different. For example, they wouldn't use rewards in the classroom but at home for their toddler who won't eat their dinner, they, they're quite happy to use rewards. With you, is your philosophy professionally and personally different, or, or do you uh, manage the behaviour of your children as you do, as you, as you, you know, as you laid out here? You should ask my kids this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my son, actually, my son calls me harsh. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. Um, he calls me harsh. He says, both of them think that I am a dragon. <laughs> um, they think that I have been, uh, that I am moulded in the same shape as my father. <laughs> That's probably right. Um, yeah, in Australia, the term would be harder. <laughs> mm. But, um, but uh, there's, yeah, no, it's not. I don't think I'm different uh, in the approach that I would have, you know, as a teacher or in schools or as a principal or anything else. I mean, there is, um, I think the key to it is understanding at fundamentally what's behind behaviour. I have, I have high standards. Um, I want my children to be above everything I want them to have integrity mm. um, so I do want them to be honest um, and I but as well so that's another thing you know if you jump on somebody who gets in trouble all the time then you become somebody that they're afraid of telling the truth to as well so you can actually encourage lying so yeah I don't know if I've given you a very good answer on that one I but, think you um, have indeed um, I think that's uh, I think that 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 is, you know showcases the approach and that it reiterates what you were saying earlier that you know this isn't a let kids do what they want policy it's a find out what the problem is work out a support mechanism and then if there is still a, an issue around behaviour then putting essentially you know boundaries whatever those boundaries might be you know they, there's many interpretations of that but it's about a structured supportive route to to behaviour would that be fair I guess. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, I do believe in boundaries, but I do think that those boundaries need to be flexible and I think they need to be appropriate. Sometimes I get the sense that people are imposing what they wish for themselves um, or, you know, there, there can be this kind of <laughs> wowzer um, type uh, sort of view out there in the world that, you know, you've got to be squeaky clean all the time and always do what you're told and always be perfect and I actually don't subscribe to that view because I think there are value there is value in making mistakes and and also I think that there's value in pushing boundaries I mean I would never have achieved what I have in my life if I uh, didn't push boundaries if I didn't decide that you know what the hell um, I can do what I want or I can you know I can achieve something that no one else in my family has achieved or that a lot of people don't think is um, you know um, the kind of route for a woman uh, to follow so I think boundary teaching our kids to be I guess risk takers within reason um, is is something that's worthwhile I don't want my kids to be someone who always does what they are told I want them to have the ability to choose. I think that's different. That's a lovely place to end it. Thank you very much, Linda, for your time today. <laughs> You're welcome, John. It was lovely talking to you. Cheers. Bye.